Hey everyone, this is James Thayer with The World's Last Night. Today, I'm going to be talking about something extremely important. Probably out of all the messages I've given, this one is the one that if you don't, you know, if you're going to remember one, I want you to remember this one. So in this podcast, I have a habit of talking about righteousness, uh, correct living, my thoughts on, you know, if people would actually do what scripture has outlined or what philosophy tells us might be the correct things to do, then life would be better and our culture would be better and things would just be, in general, more prosperous. Well, you know, what I have a habit of doing is is couching things in terms of justice and goodness and righteousness, and these are all good things, but I seldom couch things in terms of mercy And so, for example, like I talk a whole lot about marriage um, and, you know, rail against divorce, but I haven't really explained the other half of that um, scenario, which would be if you are someone who has gotten a divorce before. And so this message is mainly about, well, what do you do when you have sin in your life currently or in your past as a Christian, as a non-Christian, what do you do when you're a Christian and you stumble and you sin? Uh, maybe you're led away by temptation or caught off guard um, or just have a weak moment. Whatever it might be, these are very important things to talk about, and it's something I haven't really talked a lot about. And so I want to encourage you today with God's Word and let you know exactly what he thinks about these things, because the, uh, what is, I think what happened probably during the, like, Jesus movement is there was a lot of, um, you know, some, somewhat a lot of fire and brimstone when it came to topics of sin. And then in reaction to that, we have this progressive ideology in churches that they don't want to talk about righteous living and holiness and God's wrath against sin. And so then, you know, you have someone like me coming along. It's like, no, we need to talk about these things. These are important. You can't throw them out. And then I might fail to balance that out with talking about God's love and mercy and and how he actually responds to you when you do screw up. So I wanted to make a more encouraging podcast about this topic And so I'm going to read several bits of scripture. I'm going to read a quote by C.S. Lewis. Um, But let's just pretend, let's start with that first scenario. Say you're someone who has done something bad, and we'll just stick with marriage. Maybe you've committed adultery on your spouse. Maybe you um, have gotten a divorce when scripture says you shouldn't. Um, whatever it might be, you know, there's other, this bajillion sins out there, whatever yours might be. What does God say about your sin? Now, I'll, I'll come at this two different ways. Let's say one, you are a Christian currently, and in your past you have sin. What does God say about your past sin? So when you become a Christian, you know, you repent, you, you, you ask God to forgive you for your sin, but then you might have this issue where you continually think about your past sin, and you wonder if God's actually forgiven you for it, 
and you feel what Scripture calls condemnation. You feel condemned, judged for it. And I want to encourage you to know that this is not how God views you. That is not how God views your past sins. Your past sins are, are just that. They're in the past. And it's um, not something that you should dwell on in the present. And so, if you flip over to Romans 8, verse 1, you see this passage that's often quoted. It says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, what's the difference between, say, you know, feeling guilty for a past sin and feeling guilty for something that you've presently done wrong? Well, I asked a pastor this once that was discipling me. I said, what? I don't get it. What's the difference between, you keep talking about conviction and condemnation. Like, what is the difference between those two? Because they sound the same. They both make you feel bad about what you've done. And his response, and actually he brought in another lady um, into our group, and, you know, she actually gave me the same response. But basically, the difference between condemnation and conviction is, well, condemnation comes from Satan, He's trying to make you feel guilty about something that God has already forgiven you for. That's his way of making you useless, of, imp- of uh, making it to where you are incapable of being um, one who bears fruit, walking in freedom, and uh, being productive in the kingdom of God. He tries to keep you down and trapped in your thoughts about something that You've already been forgiven for. So what's conviction then? Because we know from Scripture that Christians can be convicted of their sin. Well, conviction comes from the Holy Spirit as opposed to from Satan. Now, conviction is whenever you have a contrite, which sort of means a sad heart about your sin. You recognize that it's wrong. And the Holy Spirit is the one that's letting your heart know that and is telling you, this is grieving me. Because he's holy, he can't have any part in your sin. He's not going to, you know, be able to be with you in your sin like that. So he's convicting you and pointing you towards Christ, where you can find forgiveness, and then also towards Um, God the Father, to be reconciled. And so the difference between those two, it it partially comes down to your your response. Satan is trying to motivate you not to move forward. The Holy Spirit, through conviction, is trying to motivate you to move forward, to repent. And I like to argue that the scariest place anyone could possibly be spiritually is where they're not convicted of sin that they commit. And I'm talking like in the present. If you're a Christian and you are sinning, if you don't feel guilt about that sin, that's scary because that means the Holy Spirit isn't speaking to you. You've been cut off and turned over to your sin. That's what Romans 1 says. Let's see if I can pull up Romans 1. You know, Romans 1 is... um, is a very scary verse, but also just like it really um, magnifies and lets us know that you 
can get your way. And if you get your way, it's pretty scary. Um, let's see. Uh, I've been clearly known. Therefore, okay. So it says, uh, verse 18, the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Paul is writing a polemic, basically saying that people are without excuse to deny God and suppress the truth about God. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. He's basically saying all these people across the earth, they exchanged the knowledge they had of God for uh, idols and they worshiped people, whether, you know, we're in Exodus talking about worshiping Pharaoh, worshiping themselves, or they may have worshiped like carven images, or they could have been like the Native Americans, uh, worshiping creation, animals, spirits, um, in, in nature. So what does God do? Well, verse 24 is the horrifying verse. It says, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of the hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. And it goes on. This is, it's this idea that you can have your way, but frankly, you don't want to have your way in this scenario. You don't want God to give you over to your sin to let you indulge in it. When he does that, it's a last ditch effort to get you to repent because you're going to get the full, you're going to reap the full reward of your sin, which is misery is death separation from God. So if you're not, if you're actively sinning as a Christian and it doesn't make you feel guilty and a desire to repent and be re uh, connected to God, that means he's handed you over and you're going to have a rough time of it. But if you are in God the Holy Spirit's going to convict you of that sin that you're presently committing, and you're going to then have a desire to repent and try again. And by try again, I mean try not to sin the next time you are tempted or drawn away in that situation. So I'm going to read to you, but before I go on, I just want to make sure that that's, that's clear, the difference between condemnation and conviction. Condemnation past sin, you know, sins that you've already asked for forgiveness for and have repented of, that's wrong. If you ever start feeling guilty about that, you need to um, quote that verse. Quote Romans 8.1. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And claim that over your life and rebuke Satan who is trying to make you feel guilty about something that God does not any longer count against you. And in fact, let's see if I can find that verse. Um, God actually says, uh, this is Isaiah 43, 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions, which is sin for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Hebrews 8, 12 says, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities. Iniquities is sin. And I will remember their sins no more. So God, if God doesn't 
hold you um, culpable for those past sins anymore. If he literally says he's not going to remember them, neither should you. Move on from it. Walk in freedom. But if you are presently sinning and you feel the Holy Spirit calling you to repentance, then you need to repent or else God might give you over to that sin. So what happens if you're in the present, you're a Christian, you're sinning, and you you mess up? Maybe you're a drug addict. Maybe you are a porn addict. Maybe you um, habitually lie. Maybe you're a kleptomaniac. Whatever your vices are, whatever it is that's displeasing to God, maybe you have a, a angry heart. For me, it's a, a spirit of, of criticism. Like, my mind is very critical, and uh, I hate it. And the day I wake up and I no longer have that critical mind, I'm going to be very happy because I'm going to be in heaven. <laughs> I'm going to have a new mind at that point. But it's, uh, it's something that I do struggle with and try to fight against. Well, what is C.S. Lewis, what's his advice to you? Well, in Mere Christianity, he says, uh, you know, if you've sinned, basically pick yourself up, try again, ask for God's help. And he says, you must ask for God's help. Even when you have done so, it may seem to you for a long time that no help or less help than you need is being given. Never mind, after each failure, ask forgiveness, pick yourself up, and try again. Very often what God first helps us towards is not the virtue itself, but just this power of always trying again. I, I call that tenacity. It is that you won't settle for less than perfection when it comes to um, your, your righteousness. When it comes to righteousness or trying to live a holy life, it's very important that we have high ideals. It's very important that we strive for purity, strive for perfection, strive for goodness, holiness, and all of that. I feel like a lot of my culture doesn't um, hold virtue in high esteem, but it's probably equally as important to not um, not beat yourself up too hard when you don't achieve those high ideals. And when you fail and you fall, as C.S. Lewis says, ask for forgiveness and pick yourself up. And as you work towards that virtue, you're developing through the process the virtue of tenacity, this ability of perseverance to continue to try even through failure to do better. I think the, the very important thing is to, from the time you're born to the time you die, to always try to do better. Never give up on striving for the ideal even when you fall. But also... Um, understand that you're human. And that's another Bible verse where God says that he understands we're just dust. We're just dust. But, you know, through the Holy Spirit, we have, we have life. And we are called to something greater than just dust. So our failures are understood, but that doesn't excuse us from the need for continued growth in God and our Christian walk. Okay, so let's see what do I want to read next. Let's go to 1 John 1, 9. This is another great verse for you to have memorized um, because it'll help you not give in to the myth of Christian perfectionism. I remember some preachers came on our campus preaching sinless, sinless perfectionism, I think is what it's called, 
which is nuts. They basically preached that once you become a Christian, you don't sin anymore. That's stupid. John would say you're a liar if you say that. Um, all have sin. I do believe as you grow in the faith, you sin less. Through that tenacity, through that spirit, walking in the spirit, being attentive to the Holy Spirit, I do believe as you grow in your faith, you simultaneously grow in sanctification, which is the Holy Spirit. Sanctification just means setting apart. So setting apart for God's God's good work. But I don't believe you're going to achieve sinless perfection where you never mess up until heaven, until we have a resurrected, glorified body, and this flesh is finally crucified with Christ. And we get to rise again like he did. So, 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he, talking about God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So, this is God keeping in character. If you actually have that contrite heart, if you actually feel guilt about your sin and that conviction, well, it says if you confess it to God, he's going to be faithful and just, and he's going to forgive you of it. He's going to purify you from all unrighteousness. That's only something that he can do. All of our sins are actually chiefly against God. If you don't believe me, let me see if I can find this verse. Um... Against you, God, and only you. So, let's see. Here's Psalm 51, 4. This is David after he has sinned gravely. He has sent, I think his name was Uriah, to the front lines in a war in order to have him killed. Worse than that, it wasn't like, hey, let's just send him on the front lines. It was, he told, like, the captain over that unit to pull his men back so Uriah is slaughtered and doesn't have any companions to save him. He did this because he was lusting after Uriah's wife named Bathsheba, and uh, he slept with Bathsheba and got her pregnant, tried getting Uriah to sleep with her when he came back from war temporarily, but he basically said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to like stay sanctified. You know, none of my companions are back home, whatever, whatever. So in a last-ditch effort, he's just like, well, I'll get him killed. That's what David... So David sinned horribly into try to... Uh, try to clean it up politically for him. He had a, a man, basically, well, Scripture will say he was murdered when a prophet comes to to convict David of this sin. So he commits adultery, murders someone, tries to cover up his sin. Now, this is a man who, Scripture says, was after God's own heart. So, this grievous sin, and one of our greatest... Um, kings in the Old Testament. But what does he say in Psalms 51 4? He says, he's talking to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. I believe the punishment God had is he took away David's son. But um, notice the language. He's talking to God. He says, against you, and you only have I sinned. Now, I think there is a truth to that, and then I also think there is um, missing information, because the missing information is obvious. He obviously sinned against Uriah, stole his wife, had him killed. Eh, 
sin against Uriah. But there's also this truth that when he says, only you, talking to God, have I sinned, that is also true. And to further clarify why, let me hop over to um, James in the New Testament. Um, let's see what it says. Do, do, do. James 3.9, it says, With the tongue we, pr- we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. He goes on to say, let's see, that's James 3.9, James 3.9, because what he says, he goes on to say, uh, let's see, uh, read full chapter, I need verse 10, team. He says, out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? Um, Okay, anyways, he basically, James is arguing that Man is created in the image of God. So how can you praise God and then curse your neighbor who's made in the image of God? The philosophical point James is getting at is whenever you sin against a person who is made in the image of God, you are actually sinning against God himself because that person is made in the likeness of God. And Jesus, let's see, parable of sheep and goats Laptop makes this way easier to find <clears throat> scripture I'm looking for. Why does the BBC have a whole thing on that? That is weird. Um, let's see. Pro- okay. Okay. So this is a Jesus <clears throat> talking about judging people at the end of the time. Verse 34. This is Matthew 25, verse 34. It says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Talking about coming to heaven, basically, sit at my right hand. Verse 35, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and he looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him. So he's basically saying, Then the Christians will answer Jesus, um, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did you, when did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? It says, then the King will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So Jesus is saying how you treat people directly correlates to how you treat me. And that is why, if we're going back several verses of us talking here, that is why King David can accurately say against you, God, and only you have I sinned, even though he sinned against Uriah, because a sin against Uriah is a sin against God. So... Going all the way back to 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It is within God's character to forgive you of your sin. And... The reason I went all the way through that King David thing, all the way through trying to show you, scripturally speaking, how if you sin against someone else, 
you're really sinning against God is because of this word just. He is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins. You may have sinned against someone else, but according to God, you are chiefly sinning against him. And as such, he has the ability to forgive you for that sin, even if the person you've sinned against won't. God takes it upon himself and he shows you, scripturally speaking, how it is still just of him to forgive you of that sin. This is why you really can't say Jesus was just a good teacher because in scripture, Jesus claims to be able to forgive sins. Um, there's a there's a part there's a parable where the Pharisees see um, Jesus say to a man who is uh, crippled, I forget exactly what his ailment was, but Jesus basically instead of saying, "Hey, um, you know, be healed," he says, "Your sins are forgiven." And of course, the Pharisees go crazy. Now, you and I would be like. Um, why? If you didn't, if you didn't know what I just explained to you, you'd be like, "Why?" Um, but it's because the Pharisees know that only God can truly forgive sins, and so how can Jesus forgive the sins of another man if Jesus is only a man and he wasn't the one who was chiefly sinned against? Well, he he can't unless he's God. So. This is how God can be faithful and just to forgive you of any sin you've committed, even if the person you've sinned against doesn't forgive you. Okay, what's the other verse I wanted to read you? Aha! Speaking of other people and forgiveness, flip over to Luke 17, and uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he basically says uh, in verse 3, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day, and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. That's a command if I've ever heard one. He, he says, forgive them straight up, and then later he says, you must forgive them. Uh, if you go to the Lord's Prayer, part of the Lord's Prayer is... Uh, you know, forgive us our transgressions as we forgive those who transgress against us. And another place in scripture, Jesus basically says that if you don't forgive other people their sins, he's not going to forgive you. So this act of forgiveness, it's not just God forgiving you, but you are called as a Christian to forgive other people. And that's a different topic. The reason I brought up Luke 17 verse 3 is this seven times uh, 70 even sending you seven times a day, seven times come back to you, print nine. So in this one, it just says seven. Let's see where the seven times 70 is. Forgive seven times 70. Matthew 18, 22. I don't want to go to that. Oh, this is KJV. This is, this is King James Version. Then, Peter, then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times. Peter's asking, should I forgive my brother seven times? And Jesus says, um, no, you need to forgive him seven times 70. 
Now, that's not literal. Jesus is basically using hyperbole to say, every time your brother sins against you, you should forgive him. The reason I bring this up in a message about God forgiving us is if Jesus holds us to that standard, how much more does he hold himself to that standard? Let that sink in because if you're a normal human being and you have normal vices in your life, chances are good you've sinned against God more than once, more than seven times, and more than 70 times, especially now that you know we've revealed that when you sin against another person, you're sinning against God. So how deep and how rich is God's mercy? If he requires you to forgive your brother and sister basically unlimited times, then how much more is he going to forgive you of your sin? So don't give in to this condemnation Satan tries to pull over you. He's a total dill hole, and he wants you bound and chained by your sin, by thoughts of guilt, of past sin that God's already forgiven you of. And if you ever have the thought, God won't forgive me this time, it's not true. If you actually feel guilt about it, if you have a contrite heart, if you're not faking your desire for forgiveness, God's going to forgive you. He's faithful to forgive you. So don't, if if you ever have the thought that God's not going to forgive you this time, no, that's not from the Holy Spirit. That's from Satan. And you can just ignore that or tell him to shove off. So, is there one other one I wanted to read to you? That might be it. This might be where we, where we end this. I want to tell you a story about a story. If you go on YouTube, you can look up um, Matt Chandler. He's a pastor, I believe, a church in Texas. And if you just look up uh, Jesus Wants the Rose, Matt Chandler tells a story about when he was young. And I think he was in college, and there was this older girl who um, I think had like a child out of wedlock. I can't exactly remember, but she was definitely not like chaste. She had been having premarital sex and all of that, and... um, There was a, Matt Chandler had a friend who was in a band who was playing at this church. I think it was a mutual friend. And he's like, hey, do you want to come and watch this? So Matt Chandler at this time is trying to share the gospel with this woman, right? Trying to be a good witness to her and trying to get her into church. Well, unfortunately, he went to a church service from hell is kind of how it seems to have turned out to be. He gets there and they sit down and At the beginning of the pastor's sermon in this church, he shows this pretty rose, and he shows the whole crowd, and he's like, you know, look at this rose, it's so beautiful, here, and he hands it to someone in like the front row and says, pass it around, you know, smell it, whatever, just pass it around. And then he, as Matt Chandler describes, gives one of the worst uh, sermons he's ever heard, one of the greatest mishandlings of Uh, discussion on sexual ethics from scripture he's ever heard. And it was just nothing but condemnation, nothing but like, who's going to want you um, after you've 
given yourself to, you know, so many people or whatever. And the coup d'etat of this message at the very end is he says, who has my rose? And of course, by this time, the rose has been passed around the crowd by a bunch of people. And so he gets the rose back and like all the petals are gone. And, you know, like the leaves are just hanging on by a thread because it's been handled by so many people, which is his his illustration. (laughs) And he basically says, who would want this? Holding up this rose. Who would want this rose? And he's talking about, say, you were uh, sexually promiscuous. That's like, that's his, his allegory with this rose. Allegory is probably the wrong word. Um, no, that might be right. And, uh, and of course, Matt Chandler's like angry. He says he felt real, like livid anger. He says it took everything in him not to scream out the obvious truth. Jesus wants the rose. He says, you're not even teaching the basic tenets of our faith. That's the entire point of Jesus is he wants the rose. And Matt Chandler is 100% correct. If you actually read scripture, you will find that no one is too far gone, too lost and dead in their sin. No one is above the richness of the depth of God's mercy. And Jesus ultimately wants you. He wants you. And he doesn't require you to be cleaned up before you come to him. He doesn't require you to get your act together before you come to him. And in fact, he would be the first to tell you that, no, 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 my dear child, or my dear brother or sister, you can't do it on your own. You're going to have to let me clean you up. He's the one that will perfect you. And he loves you and wants you in the midst of your sin and mess, your terrible circumstances. He wants you. That's the whole point of our faith. So never let that get lost, especially in my talks, where I talk a great deal about how Christians should live. I take it a priori. It's obvious to me, and it's why I don't talk about it too much. It's obvious to me that those are just lofty goals for us to strive toward, and we will always fail to achieve them in this life. So never forget that. Never feel like you're on the outside and these other Christians just live perfect lives because no one does. No one does. The only one who's ever done that is Jesus. And we thank God for the gospel, the good news. That's all gospel means. You've had the bad news your entire life. The bad news is you're separated from God. The reason you're separated from God is because of your sin. He's holy and he can't have anything to do with sin. But the good news is he came for you. In in the 
the person of Jesus Christ. He paid for your sins. So now you can be reconciled to him and live a life of abundance, the life you're always meant to live in him. He wants you, no matter how many petals you have left on you, he desires a intimate relationship, a loving relationship with you, and he's the one that will perfect you. So that's the end of my message. I think that's the most important message I can ever deliver in my entire life. So kids, if you're listening to this in the future, if you don't take anything else from me, from these however many podcasts I actually get done, I pray to God this is the one that you take. And even if, even if you spend your whole life, which I pray you don't, but even if you spend your whole life apart from God, and you choose a life apart from God of rebellion, I pray, at the very least on your deathbed, you understand that God still wants you. Even if you lived an entire life of sin, just like the thief on the cross who lived a life of sin, what did he do? He turned his face towards Jesus. Now, at the beginning, he insulted him, but he recognized something in Jesus. He recognized he was innocent. And then he recognized that he was the son of God. And he put his faith in him in the last moments of his life. And what did Jesus say? He didn't say, hop down off the cross, let's baptize you. Got it. Or hop down off the cross, let's make sure you give all your money to the poor first. No. He said, today you're going to be in paradise with me. So if that thief, who may never have done a single good thing in his life, certainly didn't have an opportunity to walk out in sanctification with the Holy Spirit. If he can be saved, so can you. So until next time, this is James with The World's Last Night.